Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Barry Motives. We're so happy you've joined us today. I'm actually very interested in the case that Melissa has prepared for us today. It is a super interesting one. And it's all for Truth and Reconciliation Day. And I think it is going to address some things that we do not recognize nearly enough. That is so true. The corruption and the murderous dealings with this Plains tribe of Native Americans is hard to fully capture in a single episode. But I'm going to do my best today. It's just one of those cases that could be a whole series, and I would highly recommend the book Killer of the Flower Moon by David Gran as an overview of the killings that took place in Oklahoma. There are also over 3,000 pages of FBI notes on this investigation, because it pretty much led to the creation of the modern FBI, not to mention numerous books, documentaries, and a new movie coming out. I can only imagine that you might have felt pretty overwhelmed with the amount of information you had to dig through to put together this case. This case has been a while coming. But despite all that information that does exist for this case, it's shocking how few people know about it. And that's why in Canada, we celebrate Truth and Reconciliation Day so that stories like this can be brought to the surface and we can learn from them. I think the movie will definitely be worth checking out. And it goes by the same name as the book I mentioned. And I think there's going to be some pretty big actors in that movie. Christy was the one that first found this case, and she turned it over to me. Because as you know, we like to theme our episodes sometimes. And so we were talking about truth and reconciliation and how we celebrate that here in Canada. And Melissa mentioned that she was having a hard time finding a case. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me, I had just purchased the book and was about to dive into the research for it and then thought this actually might be a really good case for this day in a way for us to honor it. And it absolutely was. I didn't read the book, so I'm going to be learning right along with our listeners. I did love digging through all the old FBI files. Like I said, there's over 3,000 pages of the original scanned-in documents that are typewriter written. It was amazing. Unfortunately, they're not all cataloged properly, (laughs) so they're not always in order. So it did take a little bit to dig through. But today, we're going to focus on just a few of the atrocious dirt bags that operated during what is now called the Reign of Terror among the Osage people. As I dug into this case, I kept finding rabbit hole after rabbit hole of other suspicious deaths and shady dealings that went on at the time, but have never been solved. So while I'll cover one family's tragedy as completely as I can, know that there are several other families that faced the same reign of terror as the tribe's people and their allies were eliminated one by one in a cold-hearted fashion. Like always, to understand the motives for any crime, we need to know the backstory. And for this case, part of the backstory lies in the history books of the Native Americans of the United States. From the Coles Notes versions, it is believed that the Osage tribe originated near the Atlantic Ocean in 700 BC and were gradually forced inland as early explorers came to the continent. These tribes' people were described by early missionaries as being a, quote, uncommonly fierce, courageous, warlike nation, and as the, quote, finest looking, as they were considerably taller than the settlers that were coming. 
commonly reaching heights of six and a half and sometimes almost seven feet tall. Whoa, that's quite a height at that time. Oh, yeah. I can only imagine what the world would look like from that height. When you're a whole foot shorter, the perspective is different. Mind you, for the seven footer, I would be close to two feet shorter. (laughs) But so would you because we're the same height. That's right. It seems like they were an intimidating people. In 1970, the federal government of the U.S. purchased the land that the Osage had settled in Kansas from them. The chief at the time was mindful of how other tribes were being pushed further and further west into what was now deemed as an uncivilized Indian territory. And with this in mind, instead of just moving into unclaimed territory, the tribe massed their wealth and purchased almost 1.5 million acres of land from the Cherokee Nation. Ooh, wow. And this was really unusual at the time for them to actually physically purchase and not just move on to land. The land, which is now in present-day Oklahoma, was chosen by the chief because of its lack of appeal for farmers. The chief of the tribe felt that the rocky hills that were not conducive to cultivation would be a place where his people would be happy. In 1906, when Oklahoma was trying to become a state, one of the provisions was that it could not have any existing reservations or large bodies of land that were reserved for a particular tribe. This was because it would limit the amount of land that would be available for new settlers to come in and settle the Wild West. Are you already learning lots? I am. (laughs) It's like a whole history lesson. (laughs) So many rabbit holes. I feel like I'm in social studies class again. I know. It does feel a little bit like that. I felt like I was learning history all over again. We're never too old to learn things. It's so true. And these types of stories should have been taught in school, but weren't. I feel that they were just kind of glossed over. Right. So to accomplish breaking up the land, the federal government had previously introduced the concept of allotment, which boils down to instead of having land collectively shared by a whole tribe, parcels of land had to be owned by an individual and not a group. A specific amount of land, 160 acres, was given to each individual in a tribe. And if there were any leftover parcels, which was always the case somehow, once the deals were struck, Those were opened up for new people to come and purchase from the federal government. What? So if they had excess land, they were just out of luck. They did not get the money for the purchase of the land, but the government did. Right. So basically like stealing their land. Well, because they had never purchased it in the first place, the government felt that it was justified. It was nobody's land, even though they were living on it. But I thought the Osage tribe had purchased that land. So that was how they dealt with all of the other tribes. Oh, I so the see. Osage are learning from watching all of these other tribes. In Oklahoma, which was considered Indian territory, there were five main tribes that the government had already made these allotment deals with. And the Osage were the last tribe to enter into an agreement with Oklahoma so that it could become a state. Okay, gotcha. I tell you, it's like a whole history lesson. It really is. The Osage leaders and the people balked at this idea of individual ownership because they had seen that it hadn't gone well for the other tribes. It was a very different way of life than the communal kind of lifestyle that they were used to. After a significant amount of pressure from the federal government, a deal was reached with the Osage. The chief at the time, James Bighart, craftily bargained that the Osage would settle into a modified allotment system, using the fact that they had legally purchased the land as a bargaining tool. So smart. Very preemptive of him. It was. And that wasn't the only deal he made. On July 1st, 1907, every member of the Osage tribe plus one non-Osage, 2,229 people in total, including an infant that was born just that day, received one allotment, 
which equated to a private ownership of 657 acres of the reservation land and a head right. So they did their math in this equation. Exactly. This was a very different deal than the other tribes had negotiated with the U.S. federal government previously. First of all, the Osage land was divided up equally between all tribe members, not the designated amount of 160 acres that other tribes were given. This meant that there was no extra land for settlers to come in and purchase. The Osage retained all of their land. Second, the head right, or 1,2229th of the tribe's collective share of mineral rights to their land was negotiated into the deal. This meant that any bonuses and royalties from the production of oil and natural gas or minerals found under any of the original tribe's reservation would belong to the person with that head right. The number of head rights was fixed permanently at 2,229 at that time. It could not be sold or gifted, it could only be inherited. The significance of this would not be fully appreciated for more than a decade. Oil was first discovered in Oklahoma just a few short years before this deal, in 1897, in the neighboring Cherokee Nation. At the time of the 1906 Act, neither the government or the Osage had any idea that oil would flow under their ground as well. But Chief James Bighart was a forward thinker and wanted to make sure that he was protecting the tribe's future interest as well as their immediate ones, so he bargained for the headright clause. Wow. So smart. Yeah, that's incredible. Just a few short years later, oil was discovered on Osage land as well, and the Osage people began to collect from their mineral rights. At first, it was just a small payment, but as more and more oil was discovered, oil tycoons and companies flocked to the Osage County to fight over rights to lease the land at public auctions, all for the rights to the oil that lay underneath the surface. The Osage tribe was positioned over one of the largest oil deposits in U.S. history, and they prospered because of it. The Bismarck Tribune calculated that in April of 1920, each Osage, including children, would receive about $10,000 that year from their head rate. Whoa, did you do the conversion? I did. That's over $360,000 today in U.S. or $494,000 in Canadian. Woo! Not too shabby of an annual salary. Yeah, that's a pretty penny. Mm-hmm. In less than 20 years, the Osage had become the wealthiest people per capita in the world. Wow. In the world, not just North America. In the world. And it sounds like they might have lived it up a little, but who wouldn't? (laughs) Yeah. As the Osage tried to meld their newfound wealth with their traditional ways of life, the newspapers from the time tell stories of the Osage arriving at ceremonies for their dances in private airplanes furnishing extravagant brick houses, and buying the latest and greatest automobiles. Most of these newspaper reports are blatant in their racism and jealousy, making comments about the red millionaires and the plutocratic Osage, showing the social undertones of the time. Many at the time were put off by the fact that the Osage people hired white people to do their menial chores. Oh my goodness. The media portrayed wealthy Osage that did nothing to earn the wealth that they were now enjoying which went against the grain of the Puritan way of life. Most had the feeling that the Osage did not deserve the money that they had collected from their head rights. They were, after all, viewed as less than human by many people at the time. Oh, that's so disturbing. Mm -hmm. And this mentality would perpetuate the idea that taking money from the Osage was not wrong. The oil boom attracted a host of people wanting to become wealthy. 
And those that were setting up boomtowns in Oklahoma were not the most upstanding citizens. A lot of them were outlaws. Gang members, fugitive, bank robbers, and the like were all coming to cash in on some of the money. While reading about this case, I couldn't help but picture an old Western movie running through my head the whole time. That's exactly what I was just picturing, actually, like the dirt road, the saloon, just could totally see it. Exactly. That sounds like what the boomtowns were like. Osage County was the wild, wild west and corruption and greed were everywhere. And then you mix in racism and jealousy, and that's going to be a brutal mix. It totally was. And it wasn't just limited to the criminals. In 1921, the federal government mandated that the Osage people were incapable of managing their own wealth. No way. It was apparent to the government from the outrageous claims that the newspapers were making and the outrage from the God-fearing folk over the tribe's wealth that the Osage did not have the sophistication to handle their own finances. Give me a break. Well, again, it was that idea that they were second-class humans. And as less than any other human being, the Osage were given less rights than other adults. They were assigned court-appointed white guardians through the government-run Federal Indian Service. So every single person was appointed a white person to look after their dealings? If you were a full-blood Osage, you were appointed a guardian. This system was ripe for corruption if any of the guardians had shady morals. The court-appointed guardians were compensated for their services of managing the individual finances of the Osage that were now deemed legally incompetent. And let me guess, it was out of the person that they're overseeing's bank account that they're getting paid from. Exactly. Ah, so they have no say, basically. We're going to push this on you and you have to pay for it. Right. And it wasn't like if you mess up managing your money, then you were deemed incompetent. As an Osage, you were incompetent from birth. Oh, that's so horrible. Mm -hmm. And it was all because they knew they had money. Yeah, it's just dollar signs. Mm -hmm. Because the government doesn't care anybody else who's blowing through their money. Nope. Age, education, experience, they all meant nothing when it came to your ability to look after your own money. So they had these tribal chiefs that were negotiating fabulous deals with the U.S. federal government. They were no longer competent to manage their own money. When we've already seen just how smart their chief really is. Right. Only the percentage of your bloodline determined your competency. If you were 100% Osage, it was deemed necessary for you to have a guardian. Guardians were given the funds from the mineral rights and then paid out allowances to the Osage people that they were responsible for. Guardians often grossly swindled their wards by purchasing items from their own stores at inflated prices, directing business to associates for kickbacks or outright stealing. It was, as the Indian Rights Association later protested, an orgy of graft and exploitation. Ooh. A lot of the Osage people were given a mere $20 allowance from their $10,000 mineral rights checks. $20 out of $10,000. Mm-hmm. And then the guardians took off with the rest of the money. So it's not even like the money is being kept in a savings for them. No. So an Osage would come up to their guardian and say, we would like to purchase a new car. And the guardian would say, okay, you can purchase this car. I'll arrange that for you. He would go to his buddy who owned the car dealership, pay him double or triple the amount, and he would give the Osage the car. Oh, so dirty. Mm -hmm. The corrupt system of guardianship that ensued was referred to as, quote, one of the largest state and federally sanctioned criminal enterprises. 
Between the oil money and the guardians, Osage County was inundated with people seeking wealth and fortune by any means necessary. One of those seeking a fortune was William King Hale. He was born on December 24, 1874, in Greenville, Texas, to Peyton Hale and Mary Gaines. Peyton and Mary were married in 1873 and had six children together. William, or Bill as he would later go by, was the fifth child. At the age of three, his mother passed away in March of 1878, and by December, his father had remarried another woman named Della Turner. Whoa, he wasted no time. He didn't. Peyton Hale, who was a hard worker transporting goods across the country, was not prepared to be a single dad. His time in the military had not prepared him to take care of six children, five and under, and his traveling job definitely didn't help. Whoa, six children, five and under? Yeah. Wow. And we have to remember, this is during the time where a husband did not cook. He did not clean. That was not his area. Right. So when his wife passed away, he quickly found a new one. He's like, I got to find a woman to take care of all my kids. That's right. Della and Peyton would add five more children to their brood. (laughs) And from all accounts, the family grew up well-liked and people regarded them as good citizens. But they were not wealthy. When the railroads snaked their ways across the U.S., Peyton's way of supporting his family decreased. The older boys, including Bill, were kept home to help earn money for the family, working as ranch hands, herding cattle from Texas to Kansas through Indian Territory. Bill had always been an ambitious man, looking for ways to escape the poverty of his youth. When he saw the opportunity that was available in Indian Territory, he struck out to make his own fortune in the early 1900s, just as the oil boom was beginning. Wow. And I just want to point out, listeners, Melissa's using the word Indian, Native, because that's what it was called at the time. And I believe in America, they still refer to people of that heritage as Native Americans. Right. Whereas in Canada, we primarily use the term Indigenous. There's no offense ever meant. Yeah. Just in case anyone was wondering, because some of these terms are maybe not used today. Exactly. At first, living only in a tent on the plains... Bill staked out a claim in the wild, wild west, while his new bride, Murdy, stayed behind in Texas. Murdy did eventually join Bill in his humble abode, where they carved out a living accumulating their own herd of cattle. Soon things were looking up for the hardworking couple, and they were able to move into Greyhorse, a settlement in Osage County. The move into town provided Bill with the opportunity to rub elbows with other cattlemen and businessmen, and he discovered his charming nature afforded him some advantage when it came to making deals and he was able to progressively accumulate more and more land and cattle, along with the respect of those around him. By the time the couple's first and only child was born in June of 1907, Bill had saved up enough to move to Fairfax, a larger town in Osage County. They moved their daughter Willie into a nice home, quite a step up above the tent that they had first lived in, and Bill traded in his cowboy attire for fine suits and suede hats and presented himself with a confident military air. But this isn't one of those nice rags-to-riches stories in the movies, where the good guy uses his newfound wealth to bless those around him and to give back. Although Bill would employ that facade. In reality, no matter how much Bill accumulated, it was never enough. The more wealth and respect he obtained, the more he wanted. And while he had never formally graduated from any school, he was very smart when it came to knowing how to work a room or a deal in his favor. On the surface, he played a good upstanding citizen, like his father had always been, using his charm to make everyone his friend. And this was a feat. In Fairfax, in the early 1920s, racial tensions ran pretty high, 
as more and more white people moved into the new state of Oklahoma in search of fortunes that had been so undeservingly given to the Osage that had been there first. So he's a super greedy dirtbag. Absolutely. Bill Hale made friends from every walk of life. He rubbed elbows with the most well-to-do citizens, court officials, and store owners, the same as he would the Osage people and outlaws that would come and hide and operate in the Wild West. He presented himself as a man that was out to protect the interests of God-fearing people, citing poetry during lectures and signing his letters, Reverend W.K. Hale. What? All to cement his image that he was a refined, good-hearted, honest businessman. Well, and to kind of put himself up on a pedestal against everyone around him. Right. Underneath this facade, though, Bill was a master manipulator. He befriended people from all walks of life, not to actually be their friends, but so that he could exploit them and use them to his advantage to work his way up the social ladder. So really what he should have signed his letters as was Demon Bill Hale instead of Reverend. Exactly. A picture in an Osage History Museum has a section removed, and on it is written, this is where the devil stood. And it's a picture of Bill Hale that's been removed. So even the museum referred to him as the devil. Yes. Wow. It's actually what intrigued the author of the book I mentioned, David Gran, to look into the case and write the book. Yeah, because that's pretty bold. Because usually museums don't differentiate between that and just put it out as history. Mm -hmm. And the picture is still there in the museum. Wow. In his book, The Osage Indian Murders, the author Lawrence J. Hogan, former FBI agent and congressman, claimed that William Hale's favorite, quote, method of building up power and prestige was to bring various individuals under obligation to him by gifts or favors. Bill knew the importance of protecting his business interests throughout the county. He made friends with the Osage, acting as a benevolent parental figure, guiding them in the best business ventures. He supported charities, schools, and hospitals that he claimed benefited the Osage. While most of the other white men were looking down their noses at the Osage and stealing from them, Bill Hale was regarded as a true friend, and he proclaimed himself to be the king of the Osage Hills. What? So he's a true wolf in sheep's clothing. Exactly. Under the facade, his connections to the Osage made it possible for him to lease and then buy large parcels of land from them and ensure that his cattle business was the biggest. Before long, he had accumulated 50,000 acres of prime grazing land through purchase or lease. To pay off the 5,000 acres he had actually purchased, he insured his land for a dollar an acre and then had a farmhand that owed him a favor set 30,000 acres of it on fire one night. Whoa. So that's $30,000 in his bank account right there. Exactly. Bill also kept up his political connections. He used his favors to give himself the title of Reserve Deputy Sheriff in the town of Fairfax. He secured a controlling interest in the Fairfax Bank and part ownership of the town's general store and funeral home. Holy cow. He had his fingers in everything. He wasn't lying when he called himself the king. No. And if all that didn't give him enough power, he used his influence to ensure that the county prosecutor himself owed his election to the strings that Bill had pulled. A very handy guy to have in your back pocket when all of your dealings are not on the up and up. His connections extended to the outlaws and crooked businessmen of Osage County as well. And they allowed him to do much more sinister things than rig elections and accumulate land. Oh my gosh. 
It's almost unbelievable that this one man can have so much control of that whole county. And have everybody in the dark about his true character. Right. He's totally manipulating and has them all in the palm of his hand. It's just mind-boggling. Today, we're going to cover just a few of William Hale's convicted and well-established crimes. But there are a lot more that he's suspected of. Because of Bill's ambition to always accumulate more and more, it wasn't long before he set his sights on obtaining one of the Osage head rights. The tricky part was that head rights could only be inherited, so he started to position himself to do so. Some of Bill's extended family from Texas had joined him on the Oklahoma frontier. Three of them were the sons of his older sister. All of his nephews were young men, and all had previous run-ins with the law, and moving west gave them the opportunity to start over, working with their rich uncle. But old habits die hard when you're in an environment that encourages those habits. Bill's nephews proved to be assets in his schemes to accumulate more wealth. They were accomplished burglars, backstabbers, and manipulators themselves. And two, Ernest and Brian Burkhart were eligible enough bachelors. Since head rights could only be inherited, the practice of marrying into an Osage family had become a common attempt to secure access to one. Oh, There are numerous suspicious deaths of Osage spouses that occurred before the marriage bed had time to cool. People would marry an Osage, pretending to be in love with them, all the while plotting to kill them. More than a few successfully got away with their murderous plot. Oh, that's horrible. Mm-hmm. Here you think somebody is in love with you and wants to marry you and you feel like you love them enough to start this family to only come to realize that they just want to end your life and steal your land. Well, and many didn't realize that in time. Oh. And so a lot of the head rights moved into different families. That's horrible. Mm -hmm. There are differing accounts about if Bill arranged for his nephew Ernest to meet Molly Kyle or if they had had a chance meeting while Ernest was working as a driver for his uncle. But either way, the meeting would seal her family's fate. Molly was an allotted full-blood Osage woman from a large and prominent Osage family. Molly was the second of four daughters born to Lizzie Q and James Nika Issei. Molly had been born in 1886 and grew up in a lodge on the reserve. Her mother was an elder that respected and tried to preserve their traditions as the oil boom hit Osage County and changed the lives of her people. Molly lived in both worlds. She attended white Catholic school and learned English and honored her traditions with her dress and appearance. Out of all of Molly's siblings, she was the most fragile due to her diabetes. She was often ill and not expected to live long. Oh, which these dirtbags would consider that a target. It does seem likely that it was her poor health that made her the target of Bill and Ernest's schemes. There are many observations made from the agents that would later investigate the Reign of Terror that Ernest was the most subservient of the three nephews, and that he worshipped the ground his uncle walked on. He had come to live with him at the age of 19 and regarded his uncle as a father figure. Ernest was smart enough to know how to work other people but was also not one to seek after leadership. He was happy to follow his domineering uncle, especially if it meant he was able to get some money while doing it. And like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of money. Yeah, not just a little bit of money. Ernest was not a fan of the poverty-stricken life he had witnessed growing up as a cotton farmer in Texas. His attitude was perfect for what Bill had planned. 
after a brief courtship, Ernest asked Molly to marry him, spurred into action after she had started to show interest in another man. He claimed that he couldn't live without her, and the two were wed in 1917. The two set up a more than comfortable home in Greyhorse, complete with white servants, and by May 1921 had two children, a daughter Elizabeth and a son James, who they called Cowboy. It was on May 21st in 1921, at a luncheon that Molly had planned, that she last saw her sister Anna. Anna was the wild child of the family. She had recently divorced her white husband and was now living it up, frequently disappearing for days, drunk on bootlegged whiskey. On this day, she was supposed to come and care for her aging mother, Lizzie Q. But she was too drunk, and her visit didn't go the greatest. After she had sobered up a bit, Ernest's younger brother Brian drove Anna home around 4.30pm, waving goodbye to her sister for the last time. Later that night, under the direction of Uncle Bill, Brian, and a known bootlegger, Kelsey Morrison picked up Anna and took her out again for a night on the town. Oh no. And it's just so sad how they continually use alcohol to lower people's suspicions and their inhibitions. Well, and Anna would be thinking... This is my sister's husband's family. I'm safe with them. Right. And she did have a little bit of an affair going on with Brian already. Oh, okay. When she was too drunk to stand, they drove her out to Three Mile Creek. And while Brian made out with her, with her head lowered, Kelsey shot her from behind. <gasps> what? Mm-hmm. While they were making out? Yeah. They lured her down to the creek and he had her back turned to Kelsey making out with her. That's so terrible. It is. I wish he would have missed and hit Brian. That would have seemed more fitting. Both of them were dirtbags. Kelsey had agreed to do the killing because Bill promised to forgive a $600 debt. Oh, he's just created this whole little gang. Mm -hmm. Bill's two henchmen then left the poor 36-year-old to lay on her back in the cold mud. A whole week would pass before a couple of men out squirrel hunting found her body in the ravine north of Fairfax. By then, she was bloated, and her features were so distorted that she could only be identified by her traditional blanket that she wore around her shoulders and her gold fillings. Oh. Two local doctors, James and David Schoen, attended the scene along with Anna's guardian, who owned the local general store and undertaker business. Anna's family and several others also went down to view the body. It would be so awful to see your loved one that way. It would be difficult in any circumstances to have to identify somebody you love, but to see them just thrown away and rotting in the mud would be so terrible and hard to get over. There's just no way for us to even fathom what that would be like. No, it would be so awful. On autopsy, it was discovered that Anna was also pregnant at the time of her death. <gasps> With Brian's baby? No, a later gossip chain would point to none other than Uncle Bill as the father. Ew, uh, Uncle Bill. But that's just gossip. And he's still married to Murdy at this time. Yeah, they stay together the whole time. Wow. I wasn't expecting that. It was just one of those little asides that they found out after. Yeah, you don't keep everything in the family, sorry. No. The Schoen brothers determined that Anna had been shot with a thirty-two caliber bullet from the size of the bullet hole. But no bullet was ever recovered, even though there was no exit wound. What? Yes. So it was hidden. It was covered up. Exactly. This would be just one of the times that Bill would arrange to have evidence tampered with. All the while, he played an outraged citizen and concerned friend of Molly's. When Molly put up a $2,000 reward to solve her sister's murder, 
Bill promised his own reward for the capture of Anna's killer and for other Osage that had gone missing or were killed. He proclaimed loudly for others to hear that, quote, we've got to stop this bloody business. Bill vowed that he would use his position as deputy to find the killer. Instead, he did the exact opposite. He hired a private investigator, under the guise of solving the crime, to plant evidence, fashion witness testimony to shape alibis, and paid for silence so that no one would suspect who was really behind Anna's death. What a weasel! He even had a prisoner in Kansas implicate Anna's ex-husband, Oda Brown, in a murder-for-hire scheme. Oh, he'd be a plausible suspect. Right. And so he found a prisoner that said, oh, I know this guy, he told me about this. When Oda's alibi checked out, Bill planted another story about a jealous woman arranging for Anna's death because she had come on to her man. Oh, so not only did he have her murdered, but now he's dragging her name through the mud. Mm -hmm. On and on the rumors were planted and cultivated by him about maybe it was a member of the notorious Al Spencer gang or such and such an outlaw. Outlaws at the time were plentiful in the boom towns in Osage County, and so they were easy to lay blame on. Brian Burkhart was called into an inquiry over Anna's death because he was the last one seen with Anna. But the inquiry led nowhere. Uncle Bill had done a wonderful job paying the people to be quiet about ever seeing Brian with Anna after 4.30pm on the 21st when he was known to have driven her to her house. And it's just so frustrating that he's able to pay off so many people. It's not just one, like they're just a bunch of dirtbags there. Yeah, he has the whole town under his spell. They all either owe him favors or he pays them to be quiet. After paying the special Osage price to bury Anna, $6,000, charged by the undertaker who, remember, is Anna's guardian, Molly grieved and focused on finding her sister's killer. But $6,000 is almost $100,000 today. <gasps> Holy cow! That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. They had two-tiered pricing systems, if you were Osage or if you were just a white person. And Osage obviously had to pay way more way, way more. And it got to the point where they were charging for the gloves that the grave diggers would wear. And hefty prices, like as if the gloves were diamond encrusted. Mm -hmm. All the time while these people are grieving for their family members. This was just one of the ways that people were profiting from the tragedies that were happening. And that's really dirty when you're gouging them at the time of the loss of a loved one. Mm-hmm. Just two months later, tragedy struck again, and Molly had to bury her mother, Lizzie. Lizzie had taken ill shortly after Anna's death, and no matter what Molly tried to do, not the traditional medicine or the expensive medicines that the Sean brothers brought, helped. And Lizzie died in July of 1921. At the time of Lizzie's death, she possessed three full head rights in addition to her own, having inherited those from her deceased first husband and two of her daughters. Some believe that it was the heartbreak over losing her children that had caused the frail elder of the tribe to waste away from a peculiar illness, but not everybody. Bill Smith was Molly's brother-in-law, married to her younger sister, Rita. He had previously been married to her other sister, Minnie. Minnie, at 27 years old, had died from a very similar wasting illness three years earlier, despite always being a very healthy person. It happened shortly after Molly married Ernest. Bill Smith did not believe that Lizzie or Minnie had died from some illness, but had been poisoned. And he was vocal about his theories on this, 
sharing them at a tribal council, saying, quote, There is no evil spirit except the one in human form. One other Osage tried to blame all the deaths and murders that were happening on a supernatural power. Bill Smith believed that the deaths had more to do with the lucrative head rights that each of the Osage held. With each death of an Osage tribe member, Bill Smith was becoming more and more suspicious of who was behind all the killings. The most recent death of his friend, Lizzie's nephew, Henry Rowan, was very suspicious to him. Henry had at one time been married to Molly through an arranged Osage marriage in 1902, when Molly was only 15. This fact was not known by very many people. Molly thought she had kept it secret from Ernest because she feared his jealousy. Uncle Bill, through Ernest, arranged for Henry to be lured out to a particular oil well that was a secret hiding place for bootleg whiskey. When he wasn't looking, John Ramsey, a cow thief working for Bill, murdered Henry for the payment of a new Ford and $600. Oh. On January 29, 1923, 40-year-old Henry's six-foot-tall frame was found slumped behind the steering wheel of his car in the steep slope northwest of Fairfax. He had been shot in the back of the head. One week after the discovery, good old Uncle Bill tried to collect a $25,000 life insurance policy that Henry had supposedly named him beneficiary for because of an outstanding loan. This was after Uncle Bill had been a pallbearer at Henry's funeral. Oh, so dirty. So he murdered Molly's ex-husband and a guy that he had talked into putting him as his beneficiary for his life insurance. Right. That was his story. Because paying for henchmen and cover-ups is a costly business. So he needed some cash. Right. For the insurance policy, Bill had had to shop around in 1921, shortly after Ernest and Molly were married, when Henry was chosen as the target for his insurance scheme. He had cashed in a considerable amount on his pasture fire, and now he was looking for some more disposable income to finance his evil endeavors. Bill at one point had tried to buy Henry's head right, but the recently changed laws did not permit it. Bill had run into some snags in his insurance plan, though. He learned that he wasn't able to take out a life insurance policy on Henry, naming himself as beneficiary. The only way he could do that is if he had proof that Henry owed him money. Miraculously, an IOU note was produced, supposedly signed by Henry. The second obstacle he ran into was that few insurance companies would insure an alcoholic like Henry was. To solve this problem, Bill needed a doctor to sign off on Henry's health certificate. Luckily, Uncle Bill had two doctors ready and willing in his back pocket already, the Schoen brothers. When obtaining the required doctor's evaluation for the policy, Uncle Bill was asked by the doctor, quote, Bill, what are you going to do, kill this Indian? To which he responded, Heck yes. And he's like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, no one batted an eye about the discussion of killing a man with two children for money. Oh, it just shows how prevalent that racism was. It was a commonly held belief that the Native Americans were less of people and therefore they didn't have to be looked at the same as everybody else. Yeah, it's like they're not even treating them like a real person at all. No, more like animals. With all the I's dotted and the T's crossed, all Bill had to do was sit back and wait until it wasn't suspicious to have Henry, who regarded Bill as his best friend, murdered. Oh, honestly, he has no soul. He is an evil, evil dirtbag. After Henry's death, Bill arranged for another individual that was sleeping with Henry's current wife to look suspicious of the crime. 
What is happening? This is wild. It is a wild case. Ernest had went along with this murder more willingly than any of the others because he believed Bill's stories that if Henry's wife did leave him, then Henry would come back and reclaim his first wife, Molly. Mm, He couldn't have that happening. After Henry's death, fear among the Osage rose to a new level. They were terrified of who might be next. Many started lighting their houses all through the night and keeping guard dogs to protect against their common enemy that lurked in the darkness. Yeah, I don't blame them. Among those that were terrified were Bill Smith and his wife Rita, Molly's sister. They were awakened by an intruder one night in their country home. They decided immediately that it was best to move into town where they wouldn't be so isolated. They just left their beautiful home and all of its furnishings and everything behind. Oh. They were leaving their house out of fear. Right. That's how fearful they were, is that they didn't even want to stay and pack up. They just had to get out of their house. And so they started over again because they had the means to do so. Wow. They just wanted somewhere safe. So they moved to Fairfax proper and bought a brand new home and started all over again. It just shows how frightened they actually were. Mm-hmm. And how wealthy they were. Bill was so convinced of his theory over the head rights that he redid his and Rita's will naming new beneficiaries and setting up clauses for scenarios if one or both of them died with instructions on what to do if they both passed away at the same time or years apart. Bill Smith would never come right out and say who he believed was responsible because he feared doing so would cause his own death. Oh, yeah. It was a common fear held among the Osage people that whoever spoke out or tried to investigate would have a target on their back. They totally would. Well, This belief existed because that's exactly what happened to those that spoke out. There had been several others that had tried to help the Osage families find out what had happened to their murdered loved ones and had met their deaths. In August 1922, Barney McBride, a white oil man whom the Osage people trusted, was asked to go to Washington, D.C. to try and enlist federal help in the investigation of the Osage murders. Barney was found murdered on August 10th, the day after he arrived in Washington. He had checked into his boarding house only to find a telegram that read, quote, be careful. He had apparently not heeded the warning and went for a walk that night alone. He was abducted and found the next morning in a culvert in Maryland with a bag over his head. (gasps) He had been stripped naked and stabbed around 30 times. Holy cow. His identification was made based on finding his name on a card that was hidden inside of his sock. Whoa. Which I think speaks to he was afraid of something happening to him and him not being able to be identified. Yeah. And so he had hidden a card inside his own sock. Because no one would think to look there. No. They took his clothes in case he had something in his pockets. Right. Wow. And they are not messing around. Not at all. They did not give him the chance to basically talk to anybody in Washington. Nope. Bill Smith was right about raising suspicions about certain individuals. It was a risky business, akin to signing your own death certificate. And then this would make other people weary to help out the Osage people. And that's why Bill wouldn't come right out and say who he thought was behind everything. In March, in Bill Smith and Rita's neighborhood, the dogs started to die. The dogs? Mm -hmm. All of them were poisoned. They had guard dogs around their houses so that people couldn't come into them. Oh, so they're wanting to just make their job easier so they can break into their homes and kill them without having to worry about a dog. Exactly. On March 9th, 1923, after following up on an investigative lead into Henry's murder with a friend, 
Bill Smith drove his Studebaker back to his home in Fairfax. His wife, Rita, was waiting for him with their white servant, 19-year-old Nettie Brookshire, who was spending the night at the Smith home. Molly and her now three children were also supposed to have spent the night at the house, but one of the children had come down with an earache, and so she had chosen to stay home that night. And it was a miracle that she did. At 2.50 in the morning, a loud explosion from dynamite placed under the house by one of Uncle Bill's henchmen blew the Smith home to pieces. Rita and Nettie died instantly, but miraculously, Bill Smith managed to survive for several days, even though burned almost beyond recognition. That's horrible. Molly saw the large orange explosion from her own home while sleeping next to Ernest, not knowing that he had arranged for the murder of her last family member. How terrifying for her. And to just think, I should have been in that house. I was supposed to be in that house. Mm -hmm. Like the universe totally protected her by giving her child an earache. Well, and Dirtbag Ernest is sleeping beside her knowing that, oh, you should have been in that house. That was the plan. Yeah. I'm surprised he wasn't like, I'll take care of the kids. You go. Yeah. Bill Smith lived for four more days after the explosion, regaining brief consciousness on the second day. The Schoen brothers were at his bedside, shooing away nurses and others from listening to any of Bill's communications. Under the pretense of finding the killer, they brought a lawyer along with them saying that he was there just in case Bill named his killer. Instead, they were there to have Bill agree, in his delirious state, that Rita's guardianship over her estate should pass to James Schoen. When they asked in front of the lawyer if Bill could reveal his killer... All he would say was, quote, you know, I've only had two enemies in this world, Bill and Ernest, but he never would fully implicate them. Bill passed away from his injuries on March 14th, 1923. It's weird that on his deathbed, he wouldn't implicate them. It wasn't right on his deathbed. He died two days later. And so maybe he didn't feel like he was going to die. Oh, that's true. I don't know. And I still just can't get over Ernest laying next to his wife in bed, knowing that at any moment, her sister's home was going to burst into flames. Well, Ernest played the concerned brother-in-law and went running to the house in his underwear. Oh, They all were very crafty on how they portrayed themselves in front of other people. So manipulative. Mm-hmm. Shortly after Bill Smith's death, the nurse that had treated him was interrogated about what she had heard from Bill on his deathbed by Brian Burkhart. The meeting had been set up by the Sean brothers. She wisely said nothing. Good. Or they would have eliminated her too, probably. Mm-hmm. In June, another Osage man, George Bigheart, and a trusted friend of the Osage was found murdered. The local attorney and former prosecutor, William W. Vaughn, had been looking into the murders privately and had collected a pile of evidence that he was keeping until the right time to go to the authorities. That's why he was summoned to the deathbed of George Bigheart, who claimed that he had information about the killings that were taking place. George had been ceremoniously taken to the hospital by Bill and Ernest after they had fed him poisoned whiskey, each of them playing up the concerned friend because they knew that George would die and that there would be no one left to point the finger at them. And they're coming off as the hero, the concerned friend who rushed him to the hospital to make sure he'd be okay. Exactly. But they were very confident that he wasn't going to be okay. Oh, they're so conniving. Mm -hmm. Before leaving for Oklahoma City, William, the lawyer, had told his wife, who had just had their 10th child, that should anything happen to him, the evidence that he had collected and money for their family were hidden in a secret spot. 
William was very aware of the evil that he was chasing when he left Oklahoma. William arrived just before George died and took his statement, and that day alerted the sheriff in Osage County that he was returning with critical information about the murders. And who's the sheriff in the back pocket of? Good old Uncle Bill. That's right. William never made it back. 36 hours later, his body was discovered by a local Boy Scout troop lying near railroad tracks north of Oklahoma City. He had been stripped and his neck broke when he was thrown off the train. There was nothing else found with him, none of the evidence that he had told the sheriff about. And when his wife went to collect the evidence from the hiding spot that he had told her about, it too had disappeared. (gasps) No way. Melissa, it seems like basically every single day, someone from the Osage tribe is being murdered. And that's why the fear among the Osage was palpable. In desperation, the tribal chieftain reached out to the U.S. Senator Charles Curtis, who himself was part Osage, on May 25, 1923, to do an impartial and thorough investigation. Up until then, the investigations had been overrun with inaptness and corruption. Part of it had to do with the time period that the murders were taking place in. Law enforcement wasn't the career that it was today, and on the frontier, it was even less established. Pretty much if you were good with a six-shooter, then you got the job as a sheriff. Your character wasn't a qualification for the job. (laughs) If you were honorable, then great. If you weren't, there was money to be made. As an example, the 300-pound local sheriff in Fairfax was rumored to have been running a brothel out of the county jail. No way. It really is the Wild Wild West. I was just going to say, this is totally like the Wild West and so much like a movie. Mm -hmm. It's hard to believe that all of this was actually happening. Like, how devastating. It would be hard to believe, except there's 3,000 pages of FBI agents note-taking following all the rumors and the trails. Wow. Can you imagine sorting through this after the fact? No. The research that I did, it was so hard to follow because nothing is in order. They randomly just scanned in pages. Another reason why the investigation was stalling was that there wasn't a lot of forensic analysis going on. Most of the evidence collected was from witness testimony and hearsay. And this allowed Bill to plant whatever evidence he needed to by paying people to say the things he needed said or to create an atmosphere of fear where no one would say anything if they had saw something. And he also, as you stated... If there was evidence that was found, he was paying to have that tampered with or even removed altogether. Exactly. Bill had placed strategic allies in places to make sure that whatever evidence there was, was taken care of. In his back pocket, Bill paid or extracted favors from the local physicians and undertakers to falsify autopsy reports so that murders were ruled natural deaths and to destroy evidence left on any body that was obviously a murder. Bill also had similar arrangements with local judges and prosecutors for the times when a connection would be made between someone who was under his employment and a murder that they had committed for him. That's how Brian was released from the first inquest into Anna's death. These connections allowed Bill to promise immunity to his henchmen and further kept them in his debt to commit other crimes for him. Even local law enforcement by this time was balking at investigating these murders out of fear. And there was good reason why the Osage people were locking their doors and always speaking in hushed tones and fleeing their homes once again. And at the heart of it all was the racial undertones that it was just Indians that were dying. So the murders weren't really being paid attention to. That was until the Osage offered to pay $20,000 plus incidentals 
to have the case investigated by the government. Oh, so basically they have to bribe the government to actually help them. Mm -hmm. And does the government help? They do. The federal government assigned the Bureau of Investigation, which would later become the FBI. In 1923, when the Bureau of Investigation took on the case, it was a very obscure branch of the Federal Justice Department, one without a lot of authority. They had very little jurisdiction to even arrest anyone. One of the only places that they had any power was on Native American reservations. The Osage murders became its first major homicide investigation. At the time, the Bureau was being run by J. Edgar Hoover, and he was on a mission to prove that law enforcement was more than just being able to handle a six-shooter. Hoover demanded that his agents wear suits instead of cowboy hats and learn modern methods of detection such as fingerprinting, ballistic analysis, and proper file reporting. He was not the most popular guy at the time, and reading reports of his character, it seemed that he might have had a little bit of a Napoleon complex. But he was out to prove the importance of his way of investigating and his bureau with the Osage murders. This is so interesting that this ties into basically the creation of the FBI. It is. It's the first big case that it handled. And that's why there's so many pages of notes. Mm -hmm. After agents' initial attempts to investigate the murders were unsuccessful, Hoover appointed an agent, Tom White, to investigate the murders. The agents at the first of the investigation got lost in the web of lies and false leads that Bill had created. They also got caught up in some of the corruption that was so rampant at the time. Thinking that they had to infiltrate the secrets of the Osage murders, the Bureau petitioned the governor of Oklahoma to release a former investigator on the case, Irvine Blackie Thompson, who had been thrown into jail for bank robbing. The governor pardoned him, and while supposed to be informing on the investigation, Blackie committed an unrelated murder and got thrown back in jail. What? Yeah, so it's a little bit of a faux pas for the Bureau. Yeah. But the new agent assigned to the case is a character all himself and could have a whole book dedicated just to him. Tom White was raised by his father, an honest lawman of the frontier. Tom and all of his brothers also became lawmen and learned to have both compassion and a love for justice. When he took on the assignment, he wasn't loving the new changes that were being made by Hoover but he saw that they were a way for justice to prevail more often. Tom really was one of the good guys. He puts together an undercover team of agents to slowly infiltrate Osage County and gain confidences so that he can start to weed out the truth. His team wasn't one that Hoover particularly approved of. They weren't all suits with college educations. He recruits one frontier lawman who would pose as a cattleman. He recruits another agent who had once sold insurance but would now sell insurance as his fake identity when he was in Osage County. And then he recruits an American Indian agent, perhaps the only agent that was Native in all of the Bureau. That's very progressive for the 1920s. Mm -hmm. He recruits other agents that had previously been investigating the case and one convict to work as an informant, Kelsey Morrison. Wait, is that the same Kelsey that shot Anna in the back of the head? Yes. But they don't know this at the time. What? He didn't say that. <gasps> and so he's working as a complete double agent. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. The investigation team knew that Kelsey was close to Bill, so they laid a trap to get him to come out of hiding after his most recent criminal bootlegging adventure. Morrison, under pressure from the agents, agreed to help undercover as a double agent. <laughs> of course, he didn't tell them just how deep or sinister his own relationship went with Bill. As information from his undercover team comes in, 
it becomes apparent that the facts and witness statements have been tainted. Over time, some witnesses have either forgotten the false statements they originally made, or now they were telling more truthful versions of events, or they trusted Morrison enough to tell the whole truth. Hmm. So from all of the previous agents' notes, they're getting completely different stories now. What a mess. It was a complete mess, and it's amazing that they found their way through it. Through the investigation, though, it becomes very apparent that one family in particular has suffered a lot. Molly's. Exactly. Tom uses his new skill of timeline mapping to discover that Molly's family has been systematically killed to allow as many headrights as possible to pass to her. When Anna died, first her headright passed to her mother and her sisters. When Lizzie died, all of the headrights that she had held passed to her two remaining daughters, and when Rita died, all were supposed to have passed to Molly. So has Molly lost every member of her family now? Every member. So all of their head rights now belong to her. Mm-hmm. There was a little bit of a slight hiccup in the plan because Bill and Rita had rewritten their will. Right. There was a stipulation in it that Molly would only inherit if both of them died at the exact same time. And that's why they had planned the bombing. Somehow Bill had found out about their new will and that's why they had to die at the same time. Right. But they didn't. He died days later. That's right. Bill Smith, though, hadn't died in the explosion with Rita, like planned, and so he actually inherited the head rights that Rita possessed. And then, when he died, they were passed to one of his relatives. Okay. That inheritance was interrupted, though, when the Schoen brothers had been declared as Rita's guardians of her estate. Right, when they came to the hospital, when Bill Smith was not all together and dying. Right, and they forced him to sign a piece of paper. Oh. So Bill had his own that was going to go to his side of the family, but this was the way that they were able to take Rita's. Exactly. But in the will, had they both died at the same time, everything would have went to Molly. Right. So there was a little bit of a hiccup in the plan. Even without the portion of Rita and Bill's head right, so Molly had still inherited a considerable amount because of murder. Oh, yeah. One head right is making them half a million dollars in today's money in Canada. And now she has that exponentially. Yeah, she has almost five and a half. So like two and a half million dollars she's making off of her head rights. Yes. Oh, that is a lot of change. It is a lot. And the fact that all of these head rights had been funneled to her wasn't lost on Molly either. She was now becoming too terrified to leave her home because she was the only person left in her family. And she believed that she would be next. And she didn't think to look at her husband. She never did. Wow. That just shows that she actually really loved him and cared about him if she did not suspect him at all. But for us, like, we can sit back now and look at it and be like, logically, he's the one who's going to get all your money. He has to be the one behind it. But she never saw it. And she never saw Bill either. He was just good old trusting Uncle Bill. Well, he's reverend and he's deputy and he's all these things. Mm Mm-hmm. Molly had always been outspoken about the murders and now felt that the target rested squarely on her back. Her health worsened to the point where she could no longer take care of her three children and had to have them fostered by other family members. Oh, man. As time passed, the investigation dove more into the murders surrounding Molly. But just when the agents felt like they might be on to a witness that would point to Bill or the Burkhart brothers, that witness would end up dead. Asa Kirby, the man that was suspected of making the bomb to blow up Rita and Bill Smith's house, was fatally shot during a jewelry heist gone wrong. 
and it might have been just bad luck for the agents had it not been for the fact that good old Uncle Bill had set the whole thing up. He had told Asa about the shipment of diamonds and the time that they would arrive, and then he also told the store owner about a potential heist that he had heard about. So basically, be ready with your gun when this guy comes in. Mm -hmm. All to make sure that Asa would not be able to say anything about making the bomb. Wow. So he's basically, like, I know this guy is acting like a criminal, but leading a lamb to the slaughter. Exactly. Other potential witnesses met similar fates. One by poisoning, another died in a car crash when his brakes failed, and on and on the list goes of how Uncle Bill took care of all those that had information that could put him at risk. Uncle Bill is running a whole mob ring at this point in time. It does have that vibe of a mob. (laughs) It honestly does. It took years to find a witness that hadn't met their demise yet. In the fall of 1925, Molly revealed to a priest that she thought she was being poisoned. Her diabetes had gotten so much worse, and the Schoen brothers had recommended the newly discovered insulin as a treatment. They were more than willing to provide Molly with injections that only made her sicker. When the information of the suspected poisoning of Molly reached Tom White, he arranged for her to be taken to a hospital, and her condition dramatically improved once the injections from the Sean brothers were stopped. Because she wasn't being poisoned anymore. Right. When asked later if they had been giving Molly insulin, James Schoen merely said, quote, I may have been. But again, they just have this air that she doesn't really matter, and I can give her what I want. Yeah, a total disregard for her life. And almost an air of confidence that Bill would protect him. The evidence that pointed to Bill Hale being the mastermind behind so many murders was shocking when laid out in sequential order. And Tom White was sure he had the right man responsible. He just had to find somebody to testify against him. And all thanks to timeline investigation. Mm -hmm. But how terrified would you be if you had been a witness and seen all these people dying? That's a real moral question. Would you say something and likely get murdered or would you get out of Dodge and save yourself? Well, so many people had been murdered that I think he would get out of Dodge. Yeah. But they eventually did find a man that could place Brian and an unidentified man with Anna at 3 a.m. the morning that she died. Yeah, Kelsey, right? Right. But he only identifies him as an unidentified man. The person that started to talk first was Blackie Thompson, now in jail again. He revealed that while he was working as an informant on the case, there was information that he had learned that he had never turned over. Now he was ready to talk. He made a statement about Bill and Ernest offering him a car for payment to do the bombing, and he knew of several others that had been approached to do the same job. Blackie's reputation, though, as a convict dampened Tom's joy over finding a talking witness. But he did use Blackie's confession to convince Ernest that the game was over and that the agents knew more than they actually did. Oh, wow. This Tom guy is amazing. He's pretty savvy. He seems like he's ahead of his time. Mm -hmm. They actually bring Blackie the convict all the way from prison to tell Ernest face to face that he has told the police everything he knows. After a long night of thinking about his options... Ernest agrees to start talking. (gasps) He's going to turn on Uncle Bill. Mm -hmm. He admitted that he went along with his uncle's plans, just like he always did, and that it was an added benefit that it was Molly that inherited everything. He never admits, though, to knowing about Molly's poisoning or that she was meant to be killed as well. And do you think he actually knew? Or do you think he actually had feelings for Molly? Mm, I think there's some evidence from some letters later that he actually did have feelings for her. 
Not originally, but he did grow to love her. So maybe he was naive enough to believe, well, Uncle Bill won't hurt Molly. It's just making sure all the money comes to me and Molly. That's right. And then Uncle Bill can use it how he wants. Ernest does start naming names of people the agents had long thought were involved in all of the murders and identifies Kelsey Morrison as the shooter that killed Anna. (laughs) And he's working for them. Yeah. Can you imagine when he told old Tommy that? Just the complete shock that the informant that had been working alongside of them the whole time was actually one of the murderers. Yeah. He also gives them the name of the man that shot Henry Rowan, John Ramsey, the local cow thief. John Ramsey was brought in for questioning, and after seeing Ernest's signed statement, Ramsey started to confess. He didn't even resist in the slightest. He just told agents, quote, get your pencils. Wow. They obviously knew their gooses were cooked. Mm-hmm. An arrest warrant was issued on January 4th, 1926 for Bill Hale and his accomplices for the murders of Bill, Rita, and Nettie. And another warrant was issued on the 9th for the murder of Henry. Hale turned himself in. That's how confident that he was that he would be able to get away with everything. No way. At first I was like, what? He's turning himself in? That seems sort of character. But it was his ego that was telling him, oh, no problem. I'll just go in. It'll make me look more innocent. I've got nothing to hide. Yeah, I'm the king of the county. They can't arrest me. Right. He was just so confident in all of his connections. When brought in for questioning... Bill, with all the evidence laid before him, refused to confess, just confidently said that he would fight it. And he put up a good fight against justice, pulling out all the tricks that had served him so well up to this point. When the first indictment proceeding began, the New York Times reported, quote, Seldom in the long history of the white man's dubious dealings with the Indian has there been such a determined combination of craft and violence as described by witnesses before the grand jury. Bill used his connections with several lawyers, judges, and politicians to secure good lawyers who immediately had Ramsey recant his confession and tell a fabricated story about the agents using force to extract that confession. Oh, he's so dirty! Ernest was so extremely nervous about testifying and completely believed that he would be killed soon that Tom arranged for him to stay out of state under constant guard until he could testify against his uncle, who was viewed as the hero of the county. When Ernest finally took the stand in the preliminary hearing on March 12th in the Pawhuska courtroom, Bill's lawyer immediately jumped up and claimed that Ernest was his client and that he needed to meet with him right away. What? Having just walked by his uncle Bill looking sternly at Ernest, Ernest agrees to meet with the lawyer. Oh, no. After a 20-minute meeting in private quarters, the judge is asked by Bill's attorney to recess until the next day. When that day began, Ernest was a witness for the defense. (gasps) Bill had a big Cheshire grin as Ernest recanted line after line of his previous statements. No, they got to him. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it was like a threatening conversation or like... Nephew, you're like a son to me. We're family. We have to stick together. Like more of a manipulative angle. Whatever angle it was, that was most of the prosecution's case. It was decided that it would be best to try Ernest for his involvement in the bombing instead of going after Bill. Well, and I would feel like as Ernest, how terrified would you be that your uncle's just going to off you because you were intending to speak against him? Mm -hmm. His trial began in May. 
The attorneys that were hired by Bill were anxious to secure an acquittal for Ernest because they knew that if Ernest was convicted, he would be likely to testify for the prosecution in Bill's case. They claimed that his confessions had all been coerced under the threat of violence. So his confessions were inadmissible, and the prosecution had to rely heavily on Kelsey Morrison's testimony to implicate Ernest. Kelsey had previously confessed to Anna's murder on May 18th, and now there was serious doubt about who would believe the word of a convicted killer. The prosecution's case was pretty weak against Ernest, and it looked like they might lose. But everything changed on June 8th. The trial had taken a short break because Ernest had just received news that his youngest daughter had died unexpectedly. What? No. Did they kill her to strong arm him? I have a strong suspicion that that's what happened, but all of the reports say she just died unexpectedly. Poor Molly. Oh my gosh. They took her daughter. I think this was the final straw for Ernest, though. When the trial resumed, Ernest made the decision to fire Bill's lawyers and change his plea to guilty. On June 21, 1926, Ernest was sentenced to life in prison for the bombing of Rita and Bill Smith. On July 26, Ernest testified against both his uncle and John Ramsey in their combined trial for the murder of Henry Rowan. Bill testified at this trial, saying, quote, I never devised a scheme to have Rowan killed. I never desired his death. The trial ended with a hung jury after five days of deliberation, thanks to Bill paying off several of the jury members. No. A retrial began on October 20th in Oklahoma City, so they took it right out of Osage County. This time, alerted to jury tampering, more care was taken to sequester them. After a day of deliberations, the jury announced that they had reached a verdict. A unanimous vote was reached that John and Bill were both found guilty of first-degree murder, and both men were sentenced to prison for the rest of their natural lives. Good. Yay. I wanted to, like, cheer. That should have been the last that we heard from these dirtbags. Oh, no. But through his connections, Bill was able to win an appeal for a retrial in 1928 for himself and 1929 for John Ramsey. But they were both found guilty again and again sentenced to life in prison. Oh, I was scared you were going to tell me they were found innocent. Bill Hale was sent to the federal penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas for hard labor under the direction of the newly appointed warden, Tom White. Yeah! Who always insisted that Bill be treated like any other prisoner. Good. Despite Osage protests, though, Bill, John, and Ernest were eventually paroled. <gasps> Bill and John Ramsey were released in 1947 after spending only 21 years in prison. Before leaving jail, Bill wrote a letter in which he expressed the desire to return to Osage County. No way. It read, quote, I had rather live at Greyhorse than any other place on earth, but it was not meant to be. As a condition of his parole, he was required to stay outside of the state of Oklahoma. After prison, he spent some of his life in Montana working as a ranch hand before moving to Arizona. Bill never admitted to ordering any killings. During a visit, Bill's relatives said he once remarked, quote, If that dang Ernest had kept his mouth shut, we'd be rich today. Bill died in a nursing home in Arizona in 1962 and was buried in Wichita, Kansas. Good riddance. And honestly, for the amount of energy and organization that it took him to be such a massive dirtbag, he could have put that for good and become rich on his own. He was doing not so bad for himself even before he started all these schemes. 
but greed just overtook him. Oh, that's why they say the love of money is the root of all evil. So true. Ernest was originally paroled in 1937, but was returned to prison after robbing a bank. In 1959, he was granted parole again and granted a full pardon in 1965 for his crimes. All of his crimes? A full pardon. Full pardon. Straight across the board. Why? Because I'm sure Uncle Bill wasn't pulling strings for him at that point in time. Nope. He spent his last years in a trailer home with his brother, Brian, and was known by his great-grandchildren as Old Dynamite. Throughout Ernest's trial, Molly had sat by herself as she listened to the evidence presented and learned the secrets of her husband and how he had murdered her family right under her nose. It was utterly devastating to her. She had never suspected him. Oh. Because she had stuck by him through the trial, the tribe ostracized her. She was honestly in an impossible situation. Mm-hmm. How sad for her. She literally... When you said she sat there all alone, she was alone because her whole family had been brutally taken from her. And because of her choice to stick by her husband and believe that he didn't do it. Yeah. How devastating then for her to find out that he did. When she learned that her trust had been misplaced, it was heart-wrenching. And I hope that her tribe welcomed her back in. Like you said, they were ostracizing her for supporting them. I hope that they showed some compassion to her after. It sounded like it took some time. It wasn't until after June 1927, a year after his trial, she actually decided to divorce Ernest to make sure that he wouldn't get any of those head rights. Oh, I'm shocked it took that long. And that's the general feeling of most of the tribe. The divorce went through at the same time that Ernest was denied his first pardon and parole. So that was a really bad day for him. It was a bad day. (laughs) He got divorce papers and found out he wasn't getting out of jail. But we don't feel sorry for him. Yeah. Like I mentioned, there were some letters that would provide evidence that Ernest had fallen in love with Molly, but the fact that he was still able to go through with his Uncle Bill's murderous plots showed just how strong a belief was that the Osage didn't really deserve the money that they had and the belief that they were of less worth than other people. So maybe he had some love for her, but had zero respect for her as a person. Right. And that's what's believed to be the motives behind all of the murders of the Osage. Like I said, the murders around Molly's family are only one of the stories during the Reign of Terror. There were many cases where there's just suspicion and no evidence. One Osage man, William Stepson, was a 21-year-old champion steer roper who, after being called out for a drink of whiskey in February of 1922, returned home shortly after only to fall to the floor with convulsions and frothing at the mouth. Oh, from the whiskey being poisoned. Yeah, both are symptoms of strychnine. William's widow went on to marry Kelsey Morrison (gasps) and then was poisoned by him so that he could inherit the head right. Oh, I forgot about Kelsey. How come he didn't get put in jail? He was put in jail and then he fought it, saying that he should have gotten a deal. Oh, yeah. Because he was literally working for the FBI? Yep. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That makes you worse, not better, honey. And then he had also testified for the prosecution. And that was actually the reason why Ernest then tried to use that same appeal. Ah, If Kelsey got it, I should, too. That's right. In March of 1922, another woman, Anna Stanford, met a suspicious end. And one of Bill's nieces was only too happy to warm her husband's bed and be put next in line to inherit a head right. Oh, And another Osage man, Charles Whitehorn, a cousin of Molly's, went missing one week before Anna. His body was discovered on the exact same day as hers. 
It was these two murdered bodies on the same day that would point to the glaring truth that there was something really sinister going on among the Osage people. Charles was found on a hill about a mile from downtown Pahuska, shot twice between the eyes. Soon after his murder, Charles's widow, Haiti, married a disreputable white man named Leroy Smitherman. As investigators dug into the reign of terror, they found evidence that pointed to the murder being orchestrated by Haiti, Smitherman, and a boarding house operator in Pahuska, all for Charles's valuable head rights. But no one would ever be prosecuted for that one. It's even recorded in one of the investigators' notes that Haiti told the agent, quote, if I tell you what happened, you will send me to the electric chair. Oh, And so she had said nothing, and the investigation went no further. When she's basically all but admitted it. Mm -hmm. But that was like most of the Osage murders. The U.S.'s official death count on the Reign of Terror topped out at 24. But scholars who delved into the historical evidence believe that the real death toll may be in the hundreds. Oh, I believe that. Most of the murders weren't solved. I believe that too. The U.S. Congress in 1925 passed a law prohibiting non-Osage from inheriting head rights of tribal members possessing more than one half Osage blood to prevent another reign of terror. And that is the case of the insidious dirtbag, the devil in sheep's clothing, William K. Hale, and his entourage of despicable henchmen that orchestrated the reign of terror among the Osage people. Wow, what a case that was. Honestly, I learned so much. We could have did a whole series on the amount of murders that took place. It was shocking to see just how many of them were unsolved, but completely proven. Right. But like you said, if they're not even considering them as an equal human, before Tom showed up, nobody was really caring to even solve these murders. They were just covering them up. And part of that was the fear that Bill had created that nobody would speak up against it. Yeah. It's hard to believe that one man could have so much control of an entire county. And how much corruption power can bring. So true. I did find it interesting that after Molly divorced Ernest, she did remarry in 1928. And it took until 1931 for a court to declare that she was competent of ruling her own funds. Wow. The whole case was fascinating. And I think that when the movie comes out, you and I have a date scheduled. We have to go see it. It's a date. (laughs) And next week, listeners, it'll be a date with you when Christy tells us another case. Hope you'll join us then. See ya. Bye. Testing, testing. Okay, second time today. We are going to get this done quickly. Oh, did you turn your mic off? You're not showing up. Oh, there we go. This is why we test. She's going to be amazing, people. Say it again for the people in the back. The court-appointed guardians. He was born on December 24th, 1970. No, 1874. (laughs) At the age of three, his mother passed away in March of 1970. Nope. 1878. <laughs> How cute is the name Marty? Touching Sorry, I keep interrupting you. No, that's okay. But I guess that's what we do. Holy. I was going to say cannoli. <laughs> Holy cannoli. Yeah, could you imagine? No. I'm like, pack up that rackety couch. <laughs> it's got a couple more years left in it. <laughs>
careful with that chair. It might fall apart, but <laughs> it's coming with us. You'd oh, be man. amazed at what some duct tape can do. On March 9th, 2000, no, not 2000. Isn't that hilarious? That timeline mapping wasn't even a really a thing. Yeah. But it's a new skill that he learned about in a college course. Let's try this out. What's that called again? (laughs) Timeline. Oh, timeline mapping. Yeah. (laughs) How do we do that? It was just so crazy to me. This is where they were learning about it. It's true. But all those tactics had to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. He's probably probably like, treat him a little worse, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I would. The the devil. (laughs) (laughs) The devil. That's brilliant. That means evil devil all in one. We got to use that. The devil. The devil. He's a devil. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.